0: Welcome to this episode of the Arcananth Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Michael Rivera here. The Arcananth Podcast is a podcast all about people, their societies, their biology, and their prehistories and histories. Today we have another archeologist and anthropologist on the show. I welcome Dr. Christina Chung. Chris, are you there?
1: Hi, hi, Michael. How are you?
0: I'm very well uh, today. It's uh, Friday when we're recording this, and um, you know, I've I've been looking forward to this all week. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you for um, taking the time. Uh, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great.
0: Mm-hmm. Where are you calling in from?
1: Uh, I am currently uh, at aix en Provence in Southern France.
0: Ooh, cool. I don't think uh, I think I've been to uh, I've been to Bordeaux. I just, uh, is that close? <laughs>
1: <laughs> not really. I'm, I'm clo- uh, the biggest city that's, uh, that's closest to me is Marseille. Oh, okay. It's about half an hour away okay. from here, but yeah, it's, 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 yeah, Bordeaux is self France. So yeah, you're not wrong.
0: Oh, The, the food must be really good. <laughs>
1: oh yeah. Gosh, the, the, the baguette. <laughs> I don't know. This, <laughs> the first thing that came up to my mind, but yeah, the food is amazing. Cheese yeah gosh so much good cheeses. when so
0: I went long. to Bordeaux I always uh, had like a croissant every morning
1: oh yeah like French croissants and no and no the- Are so different, like they are completely different from any croissants that I have in other parts of the world. So, yeah,
0: buttery and they like crumble in your mouth. And
1: (laughs) (laughs) for sure, I'm just so bummed that I can't go get uh, croissants every day now. Mm
0: -hmm. So, um, you know, I know that you work as an archaeologist. Where are you working uh, as an archaeologist? Like, in which institutions?
1: Uh, right now, I'm hired by the Natural History Museum of Paris. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm Technically, I'm supposed to be based in Paris, but I'm using the lab uh, at the Marseille University here. Um, um, That's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then this pandemic happened, so I'm kind of stuck here. (laughs) And I'm not complaining. This is a beautiful beautiful place to be stuck Mm -hmm. in
0: and so we're almost (laughs) gonna go you know talk for talk about food for an hour but um from what i understand that probably isn't too far off anyway uh in relation to like what you actually like to work on in your research
1: yeah um uh because i think food is such an important part of human lives like we eat uh, or obviously we eat every day and and it's not just for nutrition purposes, it's also, it it also forms part of our identity. So I think it's a very interesting thing to investigate, uh, just to know more about um, ancient people, not just uh, how they died, um, Mm -hmm. but also what kind of lives they were living Mm -hmm. through looking at what they have been eating.
0: Uh, eating. When was it, you know, earlier in your uh, career or in your education where you, uh, Realized that the archaeology of food and sort of looking at at past uh diets would be you know the research area that you really wanted to enter
1: so i've always been interested in history since I was very little, um, but I also love sciences, so I love doing that works um you know in high school i love I love my chemistry classes when I got into university, I kind of wanted to do a bit of both um and then um I uh, started my undergrad um, at the university of Sydney uh, and I was doing a double degree in chemistry and biochemistry and archeology. Mm -hmm. span And I just love um, the courses, but then they don't kind of, they they don't come together because it was a, it was a double degree. Um, And so I talked to one of the professors at, uh, in the archeology department and he was like, have you heard of this thing called archaeological sciences? And he kind of this, Describe it to me, um, and then it got me really interested. But then he said at the time um, that they didn't—they don't offer it at um, at University of Sydney there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what got into me, but I just got really, really—I just really want to do it. And so uh, I tried to apply for uh, universities in the UK because he told me that um, that's the best, best place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I went to York, university of York. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, uh, I did my undergrad there. Um, and I actually just like abandoned my degree at Sydney <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, and, and yeah, and I went to York and then I did my, um, I did my undergrad there, but still in a joint degree because I've wasn't entirely sure that you know this is a big shift this is going to be really working for me so I still do uh, a joint degree in archaeology and history Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah that's kind of how I started Um, so till Today, I'm still very much interested in both history as well as, um, obviously, uh, biological archaeology.
0: And when you were like sort of trying to pursue this bioarchaeology work, was that a difficult decision to move from Sydney to the UK?
1: Kind of, yes, because all my friends are in Australia at that time and I don't know anybody in the UK. But I felt like Mm -hmm. because uh, my parents are from Hong Kong, they still live in Hong Kong. I live in a boarding house when I was in Australia. Um, So I'm Mm -hmm. kind of used to being away from families anyway so it's. it's mm-hmm. I was really driven by a, like an obsession as, yeah as an obsession with um, archaeology so um, mm-hmm. and the, and the coursework was, was really really fun and different from anything I've experienced from so I think it really helps to distract <laughs> you know mm-hmm. the sadness yeah. of being away <laughs> from families and friends but yeah it was um, it was a very enjoyable
0: time. Mm-hmm. And so what about the steps after that? Like, uh, I think that, you know, going to university and, and really selecting which university you want to go to, which course you want to do. Those are big decisions when you're like, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19. But what about after that, because I think that when you commit to graduate studies to do a master's or a PhD, that is a really, really big decision. Um, how is that experience for you deciding what to do next? So
1: I obviously was very, very, still very interested in archaeology and, and especially in archaeological sciences. Um, so uh, I wanted to stay in York actually for, uh, for a master, but then I actually didn't get a funding for it. Um, and I got into Oxford. Um, and I got some funding. So, yeah, so I, uh, I went to Oxford and did a MSc in archeological science, which is, uh, again, I think I'm very lucky that I keep getting into programs that are, are very, one of the best in, in the world, not just in the country, mm-hmm. and, but also, um, taught by so many dedicated professors. So, yeah, um, I think it was, uh, at Oxford that I had the opportunity to meet with a lot of. Um, um, specialists because they also had guest lecturers flying from um, all over Europe to give um, um, classes mm-hmm. for different specialties and so yeah uh, it's it's definitely a really uh, eye-opening experience and 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 I also like the international aspect of archaeological sciences because you obviously can't be an expert in every field mm-hmm. and you you really need to rely uh, on each other's, and you need to collaborate with a lot of people, and they are not mm-hmm. from
0: one what place. What are some examples of any recent work that you've done that takes advantage of those collaborations and that international uh, spirit that there is in archaeological science?
1: So for my PhD, uh, I worked on a site called Inshu. It's a Bronze Age site in China, and this site is famous for uh, the discovery of these bones called oracle bones. These oracle bones are very important because on these bones, uh, the first record of Chinese writing uh, were discovered. So um, before the site before Inshu, everything was prehistoric. Mm-hmm. Um, but after Inshu or since Inshu, we entered historical China in a way. Mm-hmm. So this is a very, very important site for many different reasons. And I was very lucky to be involved in the project uh, looking at uh, sacrificial victims from this site. Um, so this site is mm-hmm. is, um, is a very, is a Bronze Age site, but it's, um, it's a very huge urban um, site. There are uh, you know, there's a palace area. There's a there's a royal cemetery, and there are lots and lots of industrial um, sites. There are factories that people used to make bones, uh, bone tools. Uh, people make uh, bronzes, like um, bronze foundry, and also different sorts of industries throughout the city. It's a huge city. So the part of my project focusing on looking at sacrificial victims from um, the Royal Cemetery area, and I had uh, the opportunity to collaborate with uh, a lot of international scholars. Um, we have archaeologists uh, from Yale, and I also work with two archaeologists uh, who are coming from many different universities in China, as well as. Um, the uk and us so there were uh, professors from new york university there were professors from um the beijing uh, uh chinese academy of social sciences and so we all work together um kind of together but not really together you know what i mean <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and i think it's amazing because um my specialty is um stable isotopes analysis i'm not a great osteologist i can probably tell what is a femur but you know <laughs> uh, i'm not sure if i can reliably like sex some person uh, sex a sex a skeleton but it, it's really good to see how they work uh and then you know then they explain to me uh you know what they what they think you know uh this is about um and, it, and yeah i think it's really amazing to be able to get there and work with a bunch of um, people from very different backgrounds mm-hmm. and
0: uh, specialties. Uh, you mentioned this term like oracle bones. I was curious, like where does that terminology come from?
1: So, I don't know. Like y- you might have seen this. Um, so, in uh, Inshu, uh, is the last capital um, of the Sh- of China Shang Dynasty. Mm. And so, if you think of any Shang Dynasty. Talk- Documentary, you might have seen a picture of a turtle uh, shell. Um, sorry, not shell. It's the, it's the it's called a plastron, which is the um, the plate on the abdomen of a turtle. Hmm. Um, sometimes they'll be writing scribble on these, and so the piece of turtle plastron is sometimes called uh, oracle bones. Um, so the ancient people use um, this to is an act of definition. So they kind of use this plastron. To communicate with um, either the ancestors or um, deities. Mm. So, um, for example, um, the uh, archaeologists have found plastrons with writings on it asking, for example, is it going to rain, mm-hmm. uh, or is it going to be a good year for harvesting? Or um, sometimes a king may ask, uh, is my w- my wife is pregnant? Uh, you know, the queen is pregnant. Mm-hmm. Is she going to give birth to a son? or a daughter and um, so what they do is they write their question or their wishes on the bone and then they would uh, burn it, it, um, put it over fire and see how the cracks go. Mm. And sometimes if we're really lucky, we will find the same piece uh, of turtle plastron with an answer. So, for example, this is just an example. Um, say, is it going to rain? And then on the back of the, the on the plastron, we see an answer say, thank you for the rain. And we offer 10 sacrificial victims to thank you for giving us the rain or something like that. Right. So, we know this is like... Um, This is a process that often involving um, also killing some sort of animals or humans. And this piece of information gives us a lot of um, glimpse into, you know, not just the religion, but also the political um, sphere of the Shang society, Mm -hmm. which is very Mm -hmm. interesting.
0: And so these oracle bones were found uh, near the skeletons of... um, sacrifice victims
1: the oracle bones were found no sorry so they mostly found around the palace area Mm. but there's also the biggest find this is really interesting um they found this whole huge pit just piled with um oracle bones uh, very near this uh, palace area and then um there's also a skeleton in there and then um they call him the librarian so this this pile of um oracle bones i can't tell you exactly how many pieces are there but there are tens of thousands um yeah so so basically this pit is is yes we call it the library of the of the yin shu, um has so many informations not just about you know whether they they were rain or or whether they were going to war or not but also the very one very important role it did was to confirm the historicracy of um ancient chinese mm-hmm. history because before mm-hmm. yin shu, we have no historical record uh survived so we don't know we don't even know if shang existed before
2: mm-hmm.
1: um According to Chinese uh, history text, historical text, we know that Shang existed and there were a list of kings, a list of uh, names of the kings, but we don't know if they really, you know, if those were real or not. But then because of the oracle bones, we can confirm that all these kings did exist. Not only that, but they also exist in the exact same orders um, as we've seen in um, Chinese historical texts. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like confirming. Well, not almost. It it did confirm that historical texts were right, mm-hmm. and not just about Shang dynasty, but probably about the dynasty before Shang, which was Xia. Mm. And so today we still don't have any any um, uh, liter- literal literal. Um, evidence about the existing existence of uh, the Xia dynasty but we have found a few sites mm-hmm. that possibly belong to Xia dynasty but because we know we can trust the historical sources about Shang mm-hmm. we could probably trust them about
0: Xia as well so no. that's simply like really just fascinating yes <laughs> like really fascinating archaeological case. Yeah. So uh, where, where do you fit in? So what kinds of questions were you trying to look at in this uh, international collaboration? So
1: the sacrificial victims um, found in Inshu uh, a very, very disturbing. So the site was only occupied for 250 years. Um, it was, it's not a very long time mm-hmm. to be occupied, but um, archaeologists and historians estimated there were approximately 13,000 humans being sacrificed over this really short period of time.
2: Whoa.
1: And that's a lot, and that's just humans, and we don't know about animals because um, it's very difficult to, to to account for that. So, mm-hmm. sacrificial ceremonies were a huge thing back then. And these ceremonies are not small. They, uh, I think the biggest uh, event uh, involved at least 250 people of uh, 300 people or something like that. So multiple hundreds of people were, were killed at a time mm-hmm. and these people were killed in very violent ways. So a lot of them were decapitated, but some are cut in half, um, and, um, some were burnt, some were drowned. Um, and the the being drowned one is not based on archaeological evidence. Um, because, uh, from, oracle bones we know that um, there are different ways to execute or sacrifice these kind of um, sacrificial victims and then the demography of these sacrificial victims are also very interesting because uh, a lot of predominantly they are uh, young adult male Mm -hmm. so it's very specific um, population Mm -hmm. and so one question is where like who are these people and it's almost certain that they're likely not from Inshu because that's just too many, uh, you know, of a particular group of, of, the, of the population being killed. Yeah. Um, so if they're not from Inshu, where are they from? Mm-hmm. And also, like, what are their roles? Uh, and how did they end up there? Mm-hmm. These are some of the questions that archaeologists have been wanting to know. And for the longest time, the only evidence they had was um, oracle bones. And uh, Oracle Bones um, did mention that many of them came from a, a group called Chang. Mm-hmm. And Chang, the, 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 Oracle Bone, the Oracle inscription of the word Chang, you just have to take my word for it because <laughs> I can't show you the image. It kind of looks like uh, it has like these horns coming out on the top and it looks like sheep. Oh. And, mm-hmm. and it's very similar to the word for sheep. So um a lot of historians um or Oracle Bone or, or like uh, yeah the Oracle Bone specialists, um they they basically um postulated that uh the Chang people uh were sheep herders. Mm-hmm. And so um yeah, so so the question is who are these Chang people? Um, there are several hypotheses. One, because there are so many Chang people being sacrificed uh, uh, in in according to the oracle bones, so some archaeologists basically think that you can't, they can't be coming from one group. That is just too many people coming from one group. That's not very sustainable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe it just meant all enemies um and then um also because there is a group of Chang people nowadays living in the west of china so um people also think maybe they are the same group of people so um maybe that meant that Chang people were people just you know coming from the west of inshu or some archaeologists very um uh, think that they actually came from a very specific group um and they think the Siwa culture, which is a, a, a sheep a pastoralist culture that is found in the area, in, in Ganshu province of nowadays China, mm-hmm. that, that happens to be west of Inshu. So these are the different uh, hypotheses that, um, that archaeologists had come up with. Mm-hmm. But um, before, I don't want to sound cocky, but <laughs> <laughs> before uh, the isotope, was uh, something that they uh, they could try um, it's very difficult to use traditional archaeology to to test out these hypotheses because the sacrificial victims were not buried with burial goods hmm. um, there's no writings on them so it's just they're just skeletons and it's very hard to um, tell where they're from mm-hmm and and before me, someone tried to use strontium um, analysis. So strontium analysis is an, an, a type of isotope methods that specifically used uh, to answer a question about where a mobility of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the thing is, though, because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of sacrificial victims were decapitated. That means they were not buried with their heads. Mm-hmm. And with strontium isotopes analysis, um, you typically
2: use teeth because Mm
1: -hmm. Tiva is more protective against contamination, Mm -hmm. and and strontium is something that we need to worry about contamination a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, So strontium is not really um, viable. And then I also know people are trying to do DNA um, on them, but the problem is because, as I mentioned earlier, INCHI was only occupied over 250 years. It's not a very long period of time. And we also know that back in the days, People don't move that much, um, not over vast um, distance. So mm-hmm. DNA may not be able to tell us very much um, about the the genetic diversity mm-hmm. because it's just over a very short period. So of instead time.
0: of uh, instead of strontium and uh, ancient DNA, something else had to be used, like another kind of method had to be used to answer these questions.
1: I, I proposed uh, trying with carbon nitrogen isotope analysis, analysis um, and at first it was it was not very well received because carbon and nitrogen isotope analysis are typically used for uh to to reconstruct past diets or so what people mm-hmm. ate um and uh, i made a very strong argument <laughs> <laughs> what can you lose <laughs> um just let me try and and then luckily my um the people i work with really trusted me and then they were like okay sure um Uh, And then they gave me some samples uh, from sacrificial victims and also from a group of local residents from the the residential neighborhoods of of Yinchu to compare them. And I was extremely, extremely lucky because they um, turned out to be quite different. Uh, They had very different diet. Different enough to say that they definitely were two different groups of Mm. people. So yeah, so I I had samples um, from the sacrificial victims as well as samples from a group of the local residents and I compare them and I was very lucky that um, they actually ate very different diets um, and different enough to show isotopically. And what's even more lucky for me is that so this is kind of a funny story uh, because the sacrificial vic- the samples from the sacrificial victims uh, my professor gave me was not very well preserved. So I didn't get a lot of collagen. So I have to go back to get more samples from them. Mm-hmm. And so he told me to come on a Sunday uh, at the site. But then he kind of forgot that he invited me. And then that morning he took everyone on site on a hike.
2: <laughs> so...
1: I arrived at the site and then I call him and he was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, we went hiking. And so I said, can I just sample them myself? And he was like, yeah, sure. And so I went to the room and I found the bones and because I, um, normally they don't really allow you to sample femurs because femur is usually complete. Yes. But I also know femur is the well; it has the most, usually have the most well preserved collagen because it is the biggest bone in your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there happened to be someone who already sampled the femur for um, DNA before me, so there was already a hole in most of the femurs. Mm-hmm. So I went in and just cut a little bit next to that hole just expanded a little bit and took a chunk of femur from um a bunch of individuals mm-hmm. which i think normally he wouldn't let me do
0: <laughs> um, but he had like uh you know he, he owed you like he he uh didn't show up
1: <laughs> and and to be fair i i i cut right next to, well right on top of the the part where the person before me already cut so it's not like I just cut a hole in a perfect femur. It was there was already a hole in it. Yeah. So yeah. So I took the the femur samples and then I went back and to Vancouver. I was doing my PhD in Vancouver, and I analyzed those um, femur values and then you know put them in the mass spec. And I went to a conference. Um, and at the conference I was actually showing the I was gonna show my results comparing between the sacrificial victims and the um, the local residents on a poster and I had it printed. Um, but when just like the day before the poster presentation, I received an email from our lab technician who just ran the FEMA data. And I was really excited about it and so I plotted and found out that the FEMA values were again very different from the other the other values for my first run, mm-hmm. so I was like, "Oh no, is there something wrong with my extraction? Was there like contamination? Was there something wrong with the mass fact? Like something must have gone wrong." So I, I double check what went wrong, but because I was I'm a very paranoid person, I always run um, a few samples like over and over again. So there were so there were actually a few number of um, the old. Samples from the sacrificial victims being rerun in the same run, and they
2: mm-hmm. they
1: are very different from the FEMA femur data. So, then I think these values are real. Um, so, what it meant is that um, the same individual, when I measured the data from the femur compared to the data from another bones, are different. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Mm. The, from, from every single individual, the first uh, samples the professor took from me are usually smaller bones. So maybe a bit of ulna, a little bit of fibular, so very small bones. Mm-hmm. And there's something called turnover in our bones, which is um, our bone constantly turnover over time. So uh, bigger bones takes longer to- to turn over and smaller bones take shorter time to turn over Mm -hmm. so what it means is that when you eat food basically your food get incorporated into your body tissues for bigger bones your bigger bones will incorporate a longer period of um, of your diet Mm -hmm. and for smaller bones it usually just record a shorter period of your diet does that make sense
0: yeah that's uh it's really just really fascinating how yeah, no, isotopes work because I've never done, <laughs> I've never done isotope work myself. <laughs>
1: this, is, this is a surprise to me too because I was taking the femur purely because I wanted to make sure they were well preserved. Yeah, I wasn't really thinking that actually the femur would record uh, a longer period of these people's diet, and then um, there are some studies that that looked at the uh, turnover of radiocarbon in humans femur, and then they estimated that femurs in adults almost never completely turnover. So it depends on your age and also, um, you know, your activity level. Mm -hmm. Um, It may record at least 10 years, if not like many decades of your diet over Mm -hmm. uh, your lifetime. But for smaller bones, um, there wasn't systematic uh, study on different types of uh, turnover rates at different types of bones, but Mm -hmm. bones like ribs probably turnover the fastest because it you know, you're constantly breathing, it's, it's moving and it's very small. Probably represent like a couple of years of your diet, like three four three to five years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not entirely sure uh how fast fibular or owner um turnover, but probably somewhere between rips and femur for sure. Mm-hmm. And and so what that meant is that the femur values represented uh a long term diet of these people. And then that's different from the diet they had over a shorter period of time before their death. Mm-hmm. That means that they, these people, changed their diet relatively recently. Um, and not just that, but they didn't just, you know, change the diet and then die. They changed the diet and had this new diet for a few years, like at least long enough for them to incorporate this new diet into their body. Mm. And then they die, and they
0: change from uh, from what diet to to what diet.
1: So yeah, so that's interesting. so in China, um, in Bronze Age China, uh, people eat this uh, crop called millet, and millet is a C four plant. And I'm sure um, if you uh, you have lots of isotopes came to your program before, and they talk about uh, C three and C four plants, and so they are nutritionally. They're not very different, but then what it meant is that if you eat C four plants, your carbonizer values uh, will be relatively depleted mm-hmm. uh, around minus twenty ish. Um, but if you eat C four plants, you will have re- a relatively elevated um, carbon values mm-hmm. um, close to minus tens. So it's very distinctive signatures that can tell if you if you eat a bit of C three um, among a C four diet it will be very obvious. Yeah. So um all of these people, the, all of the sacrificial victims and the and the, and the um, injured local residents, they ate a lot of um, millet. But the sacrificial victims' original diet seems to be more millet-based. So they, they have um, even higher uh, carbon isotope values and lower nitrogen values. So they seem to be very agricultural mm-hmm. um, originally. And then their new diet, um, in terms of carbon isotopes, actually um, looks like they ate a more similar diet to their local residents than they were before. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah. so the inchi people even though they are definitely farmers they they have a very they also have a very high carbonized values but not as high as the sacrificial victims original uh, value. Mm-hmm. They also uh, have higher nitrogen values so probably uh had more access to animal protein or even probably eat some uh, fish or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, and another interesting thing is the um, uh, the variability among the group. So, for the local residents, I only have samples from thirty nine individuals. I know that's not a very large number, but um, it's what I could get. Yeah. And for the sacrificial victims, I have sixty eight individuals. So it's a much bigger sample size than the than the, uh, the local residents. But comparing the, the, the breadth, like the spread of the isotope data, the uh, sacrificial victims actually show a very, very tight um, cluster.
0: Mm. So like the local residents were eating like a broader range of food. Yes,
1: exactly. And then the, the sacrificial victims have a relatively homogenous diet. And it just kind of pointed out that they were being fed a, a pretty restrictive diet mm-hmm. that doesn't have a lot of animal protein. Right. And the fact that they were sacrificed in a, you know, in a sacrificial ceremony is kind of suggested that they were not being treated as a nice guest yeah. um, during the time there. Um, and other than carbon nitrogen isotopes, I also did sulfur isotopes um, on them. And sulfur isotopes is, is, hasn't been explored too much in China um, so far, so it's it's kind of part dietary and also part geological isotope indicator. You incorporate through your diet, but it's pretty much reflecting the local geology. Mm-hmm. So combining carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur isotope values, it all shows that the sacrificial victims were likely not local because they, their their um, femur values and their smaller bones values for all three isotopes are different. And then what's very interesting is they. Actually, the shift between the the smaller bones and the femurs are very consistent. So it seems like they actually came from the same region, uh, moved to Inju as a group, lived there for a few years, and then got killed in a single ceremony.
2: Wow, yeah.
1: Um, and I talked to the osteologists who get this group of sacrificial victims, and she actually told me that i'm not sure if this is published um, she told me that it was surprise to her that there's not a lot of upper body trauma mm. so you an osteologist, you probably know this <laughs> uh, when you when you <laughs> talk about uh, uh, battlefield traumas is a lot of time is upper body yeah there are no fractures mm. that are related to kind of you know interpersonal violence mm-hmm. but there are some um low bearing fractures in the spine mm. so it seems like they were not really warriors so um the hypothesis that these were war captives at least for, for these, this group of, um, sacrificial victims I was looking at, Yeah. it looks like they were probably not involved in a war, but more yeah. involved in heavy labor. I was
0: going to ask you, like, how do we know that these cases were human sacrifices? Um, but you've answered that <laughs> those figures that you saw uh, in terms of the isotope levels indicating what they were probably consuming, were they patterns or, or numbers that you would recognize all across China at that time in the bronze age or, uh, was it different in any way? Would we expect it to be different also uh, in different time periods throughout China?
1: So that's a two-part question. For the first part, um, what people were eating really depends on the subsistence economy. So it kind of brings back to why I'm interested in food is because through looking at what people ate, you it's not just about their lifestyle, but you also kind of get to know a little bit about their um, social system. Mm-hmm. Um, so subsistence economy is basically how um, the society survives. So as I mentioned earlier, the sacrificial victims and both inchi people, they were farmers. So they lived in agricultural societies. They were farming millets. Mm. And so they would have very different isotope values comparing to people who lived in, with a different subsistence economy such as pastoralists. So if you uh, are pastoralists, you would be having... Less food from agricultural crops because you probably rely more on um, herding activities. Um, so this is so because I part of the questions, um, part of the research questions I was trying to answer was that where these sacrificial victims actually came from. Um, and since I mentioned earlier that um, there were hypotheses um, saying that the Chang people um, were sheep herders from the west, so I um, I actually have. Taken some samples from the Siwa group, which which um, which many archaeologists believe to be related to the Chang people mentioned in the oracle
2: bones, mm-hmm.
1: and so I took in some of samples from Siwa culture as well as several uh, roughly contemporaneous sites in the west of Hinshu, um in Gansu province, um, and I measure them, and it's actually one very interesting thing is that actually you can see a strong difference between pastoral societies and farming societies because because of millet is really a magical crop for us isotopes because it's so different from um, the, the isotope values are so different from um, the local vegetation. Mm-hmm. It, it's you can immediately spot the farmer you can you can tell the difference between the farmers and those who are not uh, relying so much on, on, on agricultural goods. Mm-hmm. Immediately we can say that the sacrificial vi- victims or at least the ones that I have analyzed mm-hmm. did not come from pastoral society. They were farmers. Um, just like the industry people. For your second, the second question you ask, that's another thing that I'm very interested in. So when I was collecting data for contemporaneous data to to compare uh, with my sacrificial victims, I kind of collected data from published paper of kind of around the the time period, and then I noticed there was some patterns, and so I just really quickly plot um, just carbon values against time, and then I saw that there were. Seems to be a shift towards a, a more depleted carbonized of values, which means they were eating less millet. And so, immediately, because I was just thinking about pastoralist society, and I was like, "Oh, did they? Is that is that what the direction was about? Did they turn mm-hmm. to, to less agricultural society?" But that makes no sense because um, that's not usually how where the direction
2: goes. Right.
1: So I I, I try to read up on what's happening, and turns out that Again, China is such a remarkable place to work in because of how convenient the crops people were eating at different time, periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned earlier, Northern Chinese people have been eating millet for a very long time, basically since the Neolithic period. So the Neolithic revolution brought millet into Northern China. And so um, everybody was growing millet about the end of the Neolithic period, we started to see wheat in some sites. So, wheats are sea-free. So, sea-free and sea fall crops. Mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, have very different values. So, we know from archaeological records, wheat appeared in some northern Chinese sites towards the end of Neolithic period, but we don't know to what extent were they consumed mm-hmm. We don't know how much people were eating wheat compared to millet. And then we know by through historical record that by Tang Dynasty, wheat has become one of, well, basically overtook um, millet and became the stable crop in northern China. So mm-hmm. between the end of Neolithic period to Tang Dynasty, we know wheat was consumed in some capacity, but we don't know exactly how much. Mm-hmm. And isotopes is something that will be very useful because wheat and millet, sea uh, free versus sea 4 crops, so they have very distinctive carbonate signatures. What I saw in the shift was that uh, people were actually shifting to probably starting to eat more wheat, mm-hmm. and so I was very excited. It's like that's really cool. I can finally help answer one, you know, one of the most uh, important questions in archaeology in, in Chinese archaeology: when did wheat took over and became the important crops? Yeah, and. In in my head I assume that, you know, wheat is we eat most of Northern Chinese food is made of wheat. Um you know, noodles, dumplings, um, they're very tasty and very versatile. We know why people love wheat. And for millet, to be honest, I've never tried millet until I went to work at the, uh, in situ site and they actually serve millet
2: for breakfast there
1: but before that I have never had millet before um, and they are these like little grains that are not particularly tasty so in a way I, I sorry millet <laughs> um, but yeah so you you kind of you kind of see where where's wheat's advantage comparing to millet because you can do so mm-hmm. many things with wheat so my hypothesis was that the overtake will be kind of gradual, and then plateau at some point, and then we overtook completely. Mm-hmm. I started to gather all the available isotopic data published by anybody from Middle Neolithic to I have to stop at Han Dynasty because there wasn't a lot of data after Han Dynasty. Mm-hmm. And I focus on northern China because um, southern Chinese uh, archaeological sites are not very well preserved.
0: <laughs> yeah, what's the what's the time range in like the years that you're looking at now?
1: So 9,000 BP uh, to around 2,000 years BP, AD that's exact, um, from the end of Han Dynasty. So over seven thousand years, mm-hmm. and so I plot them um, on a time series plot, and then. I was very surprised to see that there was actually, uh, I can see the shift to eating more millet from Neolithic period to late Neolithic period. So that's the Neolithic revolution. That's when uh, different hunter-gatherers groups sorting to adopt farming practices. Mm-hmm. And you can see that really rapid uh, people shift relatively quickly from sea-free to sea four because the, the local vegetations are basically sea-free. So if you're a hunter-gatherer, you would have a sea-free signal as well. So you see the shift is very clear, mm-hmm. but what surprised me was the move to uh, incorporate seafood f- food after the Neolithic period was that it's um, it's actually very um, it's a very sudden change and then also uh, I mentioned uh, I took data from uh, a bunch of sites from northern China, and northern China is a massive area mm-hmm. and technically i 'm talking about northern and northwestern China, so um, these are sites also um Basically, going very close to Xinjiang, and so this is a this is a huge area I'm talking about. And 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 what's really interesting is that the shift happened almost simultaneously across all the regions. Mm-hmm. So the the turning point uh, uh, in the isotopic data occur at at the exact same point, which is around uh, four thousand five hundred BP. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like there's something happened during this time that forces everyone to start eating more wheat yeah. and so i kind of google around and see what's happening and then uh, i found out there's this thing called the Holocene event free it's a global climatic event that has caused the global climate to change uh, uh and got colder and a lot drier suddenly and basically what i found was that um people didn't just shift the wheat because of this climate change what they did was that they diversified their fi- their farming um, tactics. So instead of just growing mm-hmm. millet, they also grew wheat. And the reason why is because wheat actually have a, a completely different uh, sowing and harvesting time uh, as millet. So you can actually do two um, rotation per year. So you can... Instead of only harvesting just millet mm-hmm. this year, you can harvest millet plus wheat. The reason why wheat has never been taken up by um, the local people very much because they they don't know wheat is amazing. They it's not intuitive to them what to do with wheat when it arrived or when it first arrived. Right. And my colleagues actually, um, she's an um, and she looked at the dental caries of these people uh, in northern China. Actually, dental caries didn't go up as much as she expected if people were eating um, uh, a lot of well-processed wheat. People only grew wheat um, because of the climate issue, and then eventually they realized what they can do with wheat, what so many wonderful pastries they can make with wheat, and then that's... When we became the most popular crop um, in China, Mm -hmm. in northern China, Um, and so it's not a very straightforward process as we think that you know climate change, bam, people switch to wheat or that wheat arrived in northern China and then it took over millet. Mm-hmm. It's not like that simple. There's a process of negotiation and also a kind of discovering what is best for them. And And I think this is all very telling and, and interesting as well.
0: There was one time when um, I was in, in Cambridge and I was doing an outreach session mm-hmm. and I was just explaining bones, <laughs> explaining prehistory. And there was this one uh, mother and child and very clearly they were from uh, Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started talking in Cantonese and I did my outreach in Cantonese, which was a cool experience because I very rarely do that. Yeah. <laughs> As I was like, uh, pointing at some pictures of prehistoric Japan, mm-hmm. the kid asked me, like, when was, like, mean? Uh, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> did the ancient people eat noodles? Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult <laughs> to explain <laughs> things to like a five-year-old mm-hmm. kid, um, and especially for me, I, I was so not used to doing outreach in uh, Cantonese. But um, I basically said that's a very interesting question, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and that archaeologists are definitely trying to answer that question. But that's a really good um, idea, and you know, if he's curious about these questions too, he should uh, look into you know, being an archaeologist one day as well. I hope
1: you're listening to this episode then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can listen to this episode because yeah, apparently from the isotopes, you can tell, you can tell uh, quite a lot.
1: Well, not whether they're eating noodles or not, but, but yeah. wheat-based
0: products that uh, could, could have been noodles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so I think I, I really, I really like uh, the finding of this research because it's like how we got noodles nowadays. It's actually because of climate change. Hmm. Because think about it, if it wasn't of climate change, then we will still be eating millet. Mm -hmm. And then if if the Chinese didn't invent noodles, then Marco Polo wouldn't be able to take it back to Italy and we won't even have pasta. Yes. (laughs) So that's a tragedy.
0: Yeah. So, in doing the science, like there's there are many different stages to it like you you know you come up with a study or a hypothesis, you practice your methods you you figure out what you want to do, you go out there, you collect data, then you come back and you analyze it in your lab, you write it up, and then you might present it at a conference. Are there any of these stages that you you know that you just enjoy and that you love in particular?
1: I really enjoy every moment of this and I'm a huge nerd. um I even love staring at the mass bags, <laughs> just just watching the peaks. I can watch that um, i I think there's like they're they're fun at different stage, and it's very different, like obviously when you start it and you get the bones in your hand that's that's really cool and um and I think the most I enjoy is actually staring. At the data that you know just churned out from the machine because like in a way this is really nerdy but in a way these data you just you just look at something that came out of these three thousand years bones mm-hmm. and you're the first person in the world to look at it yeah to, to know what that actually means and yeah, I think it's kind of for me, it's a little magical. Yeah,
0: it's a big privilege and something that is um, not a lot of people in the world can say that they are trained in or even have that experience, basically.
1: Yeah, I I know this is I'm so lucky to be working in you know in this remarkable site and also um, have the opportunity to to learn so much and. Yeah, it's, it's it's very special, mm-hmm. definitely.
0: Are there any uh, challenges though, like along the way of doing your research?
1: Obviously, yes. Um, there are lots of challenges, but um, um, yeah. So there are sometimes um, there are challenges. There 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 are definitely pros and cons about every aspect. Uh, even with when we're talking about how I enjoy working with a lot of different people, yeah. um, a lot of specialists. But one of the problem is sometimes. Um, labs can get competitive and and i i don't know i really mixed feelings about like the publication processes because sometimes you have to wait for your collaborators to publish first and then so you can use their material um and all these processes is, is a little annoying mm-hmm. to say the least mm-hmm. and and also um sometimes colleagues can be competitive, right. which is, which is not really helping. And for example, I mentioned that, um, for the sacrificial victim, I, I, before me, someone took the, uh, took samples for DNA analysis. So my, my study has been published in 2015. I finished my PhD 2015. Um, but I still haven't seen the DNA, uh, results. Mm-hmm. That's, be- I think that's because there are several labs trying to compete to get the results out. Right. Um, so like for me, I wasn't, I'm not waiting for the DNA results. Um, you know, it's, it's not a huge deal for me, Mm -hmm. but it's just a pity that I, you know, I'm really interested. I want to know, uh, what they have to say about the genetic, um, components of these people, if they're different from the, from the local residents, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately it's still. It's still
0: unpublished, right? And then it's because of that competitive and, spirit that, like, you know, no one's going to know just yet. Like, it'll take a few more years.
1: Yeah, and also similarly, there are other people who did uh, strontium analysis, um, not on the sacrificial victims, uh, but on the local residents, and also comparing to um, another group of sacrificial victims that had teeth. And I know the result has been done, but again, I still haven't seen the publications, and and I have been. You know, waiting for it to come out because I also want to to reference it. It'll be interesting to compare the strontium mm-hmm. data with my carbon nit- nitrogen and sulfur data. But yeah, um, it's still not out. And then you know, it's it's a pity that um, that academia is not more open
2: mm-hmm.
1: and co- collaborative. Like for the most part, most people I work with are very very nice, and you know helping me a lot.
0: Yeah. The way that I kind of try to get around that kind of culture is to, you know, recognize people who have a similar ethos and a similar sort of approach that they want to work with you and they want to be very open about it and what else they're involved in. So if they're involved in some other kind of like um, feuds (laughs) (laughs) or like competition, like elsewhere, it kind of signals to me that like, maybe, maybe I don't want to write something with them because... They they might be bringing that into into our work relationship.
1: Yeah, but when you work in a UNESCO site, you don't really have options who yeah. to, to work
0: with. Are there any other areas of uh, archaeology anthropology that you are working on right now?
1: So, for my postdoc project, I'm, I'm working on a project called Neil John, which is uh, looking at the uh, gender relations uh, in in Neil, uh, among Neolithic cultures in northern France specifically. Mm. Uh, so I'm. I'm actually very interested in the gender aspect in archaeology as well, uh, but unfortunately, I haven't been able to explore it too much in my previous ex- uh, um, experiences. So, so I'm very excited about this because of uh, the pandemic, <laughs> my lab has shut down, mm-hmm. so uh, I haven't done too much um, lab works to to be able to tell you too much about it, but. Um, The sites I'm involved in are, 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 again, really, really cool. So these are the first monumental cemeteries found in Western Europe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, hopefully in... in Hopefully, this is this will be over soon, and then I mean the pandemic will be over soon, so I can resume my lab work. Yeah, and tell you more about you it. You said
0: um, at the at the start, you said that you you know you've you've been obsessed with bioarchaeology since you were in Sydney. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you proud? Are you like uh, happy with you know how how it's gone so far, like in pursuing this passion of yours?
1: Yeah, I um, I have been I have mentioned it many times. I'm very very lucky to to be involved in so many different amazing projects and work with people. Um, and I think, um, I've been trying to make sure that my work is just, not just something to you know fuel my curiosity, but also relevant to the real world. So um, that's why um, I'm, I'm really proud of my climate change uh, project because it does inform um, you know, modern society, what is a good strategy, stra- strategy to to tackle future climate change, climate catastrophe? Mm-hmm. I want to make sure uh, my research is relevant and um, not completely um, you know, living in my fantasy world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, also that you are from Hong Kong, like just like me. Mm-hmm. What do your uh, family think about you or your friends back home think about you doing this? Uh, because in my in my family at least, Nobody, nobody really understood what what it was that I was going to pursue.
1: <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, no, my my parents—they're lovely. They love me, but they don't care what I do. <laughs> um, they, just,
0: they care that they're, they're that you're healthy and you're happy. Yeah,
1: they they mostly yeah they're happy that I'm married. Yeah, because they're really worried that I won't be able to find a husband because I have a PhD. I think that
0: they didn't understand, like my family didn't understand uh, anything, and then. Um, every, every year when I went back for, you know, my knowledge is, uh, accumulating basically. And then, uh, when I go back every summer and we're having dinner,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, it just kind of naturally comes out where suddenly like I'm telling them what I'm learning about at the time. And then they, they start to ask me like, wait, wait, when, when was Hong Kong like first populated? Um, uh, why is our hair black? Uh, is there a reason that my friend is like, you know, uh, lactose intolerant? And then because I'm trained in anthropology, I'm able to like tell them that and Mm -hmm. they didn't realize that that was was like my function in society until, (laughs) until those uh, conversations.
1: Yeah. So, so my parents, they, they are proud of me, but they, they are proud, you know, to the extent that, oh, cool. Yeah. You have a PhD. That's cute. And (laughs) you don't have a, you don't have a real job though. (laughs) (laughs) Um, they, they don't like my dad is a businessman so he doesn't really want to know about dead people that much yeah um, you know the Chinese superstitious stuff um, but yeah so for for my sacrificial uh, victim project like there there was actually someone translated my uh, article into into Chinese and Ooh. in 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 like easy to read language because I actually I wrote my I wrote some of my um My studies in Chinese too, and I sent it to the prof I was working in China um, because I also want to make sure the Chinese scholars are reading it. I don't want to hide my findings, Um, but those are a little difficult to, you know, for for non academics to Mm. read. Um, So, so I sent that article to my dad, and so he finally read it after like I don't know ten years of me doing (laughs) archaeology. And
0: what was his reaction?
1: uh, I think he thinks it's cute.
0: Look, it takes a lot of, you know, skill and a lot of knowledge to do, to do what you do. So
1: thanks. But I I mean, he's very like, they're as supportive as they could for Chinese parents.
0: They're They're supportive in other ways, you know? Exactly. Exactly. They express it. They express it differently.
1: They send me lots of food.
0: Yeah. That's, that's what they mean. Like when they're proud of you yeah <laughs> uh, you deserve it <laughs> yeah and so uh in the future years like in in the next coming uh years what would you like to do just speaking for myself at least like i i don't want to uh give a lot away but i am thinking a lot about uh mm-hmm. doing what i do like in osteology uh, a little bit more in east and southeast asia uh back where mm-hmm. i am uh, home
1: oh i definitely always wanted to go back to Asia. Um, actually, when I was doing my last postdoc, I tried to contact um, the AMO, which is the Antiquity and Monument Something Office in Hong Kong, um, mm-hmm. because they do have a collection of Neolithic skeletons found in Hong Kong. Did you know that? I
0: have also written to them before. Yes, and then I
1: really <laughs> wanted... And I, w- I was just... Apparently, it was being too honest because I actually got a meeting with them. But I went in and yeah. told them this is a destructive method, and then that just scared them off. So I lost my opportunity, but after all, like I'm still, I, I'm very interested in, you know, as, as an, as a topic, I work in a very different geographical and cultural backgrounds. Um, and they're all very interesting to me, but ultimately, um, it will be really nice if I can do something
0: yeah. in Hong Kong. Well, um, you know, we're, we're going to keep talking off the mic Yes. and, um, <laughs> You know, anyone listening, very yeah. curious about like wh- where this is going. They just have to keep their eyes peeled. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, anyone wants to uh, ask you any questions or they want to follow all the work that you're doing, can they find you somewhere online?
1: I'm on Twitter. It's Chris underscore TT underscore Chang. All my publications are in uh, Google Scholar. Um...
0: I also really enjoyed your um, your articles, basically. Like you had written in the uh, Sapiens a couple of times and uh, they're really good summaries of your uh, your work for like public audiences i'm glad you like them <laughs> um and the last thing that i do on the podcast is i like to ask the guest if they can come up with a hashtag to go with their episode so it's kind of like a secret at the end of every episode listeners will use the hashtag to indicate that they've heard the whole interview like all the way to the end is there a hashtag you can think of for this one
1: uh, what about food isotopes?
0: yeah hashtag food isotopes i like that one Listeners, if you want to find out more about Chris's work, then I'll be including a bunch of links to her Sapiens articles, on arcananth.com you can also find new episodes there every monday wednesday and friday as well as on itunes spotify stitcher soundcloud and anywhere else you find podcasts thank you so much to the patrons of the show who keep the show going if you listening right now are not yet a patron and you want to support this public anthropology project then go to patreon.com slash arcananth pod and you can find out how you can support the show finally follow us on facebook twitter instagram and reddit where you can find all the updates on the podcast Chris, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode.
2: Thank you again for having me. Yeah, and, um,
0: you know, <laughs> if, if things really work out uh, soon, uh, maybe we will record another episode from Hong Kong.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, that would be awesome. We'll look forward to that. Okay. Um,
0: listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye.
1: Bye.